Hey everybody, this is Brett. And this is Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. The best of the 2010s! gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. It is I, Christian, your humble narrator. As with me always is Brett, the creator of Gilded Films Podcast, and we are here to talk about the best of the 2010s, a decade filled with movies that inspired us, movies that made us cringe, laugh, cry, and profusely talk about... I suppose that's why we're here, yes. So anyway, these are the best of the decade that we had. These lists were so hard to make. Wouldn't you agree, Brett? Very much so. Honestly, like my first three or so, yeah, no problem. Then I get down to like my last my last three and it's like, oh God, what do I have to leave off here? I'm going to hate myself for it. But no. You bring up a good point though. 2010s in film are officially over. 2020 is here. Big question is, what are the 2010s in films going to be remembered for? I mean, is it the MCU? Streaming services? I don't know. It was a good decade, I think, honestly. I think it was a period where everybody of our generation got to finally watch the grown-up movies. There we go. That is a thoughtful answer. There we go. I appreciate that. Okay. So yes, we will be counting down our top 10 films of the 2010s as the final episode in our series covering all the different best aspects of film this decade. Um, so if you haven't caught any of our previous ones, you got to check them out. We've covered the best songs and movies, best animated, supporting actors, leading actors, all leading up to this. With that, I want to say thanks to everybody who has tuned in so far. Um, as always, if you could rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, I know we've already got a few of you out there doing that, um, and it's much appreciated. So thanks to everybody for tuning in and for sharing it with others. Okay, Christian, how are we feeling? Do you want to take us away? I'll do it. Awesome. All right. So my, again, these were so hard to make, and I made this list last night. So <laughs> my number 10 pick of the decade is a film that, won the Academy Award for Best Picture for a solid two minutes. It is La La Land. Nice. From 2016, directed by Damien Giselle. Do you want me to give the plot of the film? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Okay. Brief, brief plot. Brief plot. Two people fall in love through song and dance in Los Angeles. They have two very different career paths, two very different life paths, and... They have to decide pretty much if they will work together or go their own separate ways to make their dreams come true. Again, it is told through song. It is a musical. It won Best Picture for a solid two minutes. <laughs> One of the best Oscar moments, I must say. I initial, initial, ugh, 
I originally <laughs> liked this movie a lot. First viewing. Second viewing in theaters at a much smaller independent theater. Loved it. It stuck with me. I've memorized the songs. I've memorized scenes. I watched it, I believe, in the first five months that I had access to it. So in theaters and on Blu-ray, like seven different times. <laughs> yeah. Nice. This is like my top film of 2016. But it's one that I definitely get a lot of inspiration from. I know that a lot of people's pick that year was Moonlight, another great film. Don't get me wrong. La La Land will always be number one for me. It harkens back to all the musicals of MGM, uh, of MGM, uh, Warner Brothers, whatever, from the 30s, the 40s, that I love. So like rewatching this and seeing how much Damien Chazelle actually put into it from other musicals, it's like, yes, this man knew his musicals, he knew what he wanted, and he throws us a damn curveball. And doesn't give us the ending that we're expecting, but the ending that you can be satisfied with. Yes. I will not say everybody I know is satisfied with the ending, but I am satisfied with the ending. Oh, yeah. I know some people who outright just hate the ending, but I personally love it. Um, I think it's a fantastic ending. But to, to wrap up a fantastic film that you will likely hear more from me on later. Ooh. Yes. Okay, so I'm kicking off my number 10 with uh, the first year of the decade, 2010, um, with The Social Network from David Fincher. Nowadays, looking back, it's like, oh my God, how did the King speech beat this? And I align with that. I, I think this is, the Academy really could have picked a, a true masterpiece um, with this one, but that's beside the point. This is a story of, the founding of Facebook, somewhat by Mark Zuckerberg. Not really. Um, it's a story of how the idea actually came about at Harvard from the Winklevoss twins and uh, played by Army Hammer and how um, Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal of Mark Zuckerberg kind of takes that idea from them and forms Facebook with the help of his friend Eduardo Saverin, played excellently by Andrew Garfield, um, and from, oh, Justin Timberlake's character, Sean Parker, Sean Parker, um, inventor of Napster. Napster. When I first heard of this movie and, and anyway, it goes into this big legal dispute, um, uh, between Zuckerberg and all these people who want to claim the right of Facebook and whatnot. When I first heard of this movie, I was in high school. We didn't really get theaters like this in my rural area. And I didn't really follow the Oscars a whole lot yet. So I heard there was a Facebook movie. I thought, Oh, a teen party movie. That sounds about right. No, very much not the case. Um, it's actually an amazing, well-crafted film that really covers some of these issues. And this character, Mark Zuckerberg, who is a total just jerk in this movie. I mean, when I first watched it, I was kind of like, you know, on his side. He's the main character. You know, I watch it. I think about it now and it's like, man, there are really no straightforward heroes and villains in this movie. You know, nobody's perfect. There are very three-dimensional characters, including Zuckerberg um, and Saverin, you know, Andrew Garfield's character. And it's very, very interesting to see how this all comes about. 
that's the thing about this film is that it's not like it's extremely fast paced, but it feels like it doesn't slow down because it's just so fascinating. The more and more we dive into it. Um, good performance from Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, like I mentioned, probably still my favorite army hammer performance, honestly. Um, like I can't think of anybody better to play a couple of rich white frat boys. Mm. Um, but yeah, extremely interesting film. I've seen, I think, four or five David Fincher films. They all are awesome. This one might be his best. So my number 10 is The Social Network. I will save my thoughts. All right. Let's hear your number nine. My number nine comes from 2017, directed by my idol, Mi Vida, Mi uh, Amigo. Guillermo de Toro. It is The Shape of Water. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised it's so low. I know, but I told you this list was hard. And yeah, it's probably it is. such an interchangeable list that it's probably not all complete. But no, I love this film so much. Um, if you've listened to our podcast detailing our favorite acting performances, you'll know a little bit about why I love this film, especially Sally Hawkins' performance. But a brief summation, a mute woman works at a a government facility where she encounters one day a fish amphibian man. She learns to sort of bond with him, and then she comes up with a plan to get him out of there, throw him back into the waters, and release him, put him back to his freedom. And she slowly falls in love with him. People thought that was such a strange concept. People still think it's such a strange concept. But watch the damn film and you will see that it is the most elaborate, fantasy, dark, humorous, sad, sophisticated film that honestly I've ever seen. I'm blown away by it every time I see it. I get so hyped every time I see it. Um, Really one of the best films of this decade and one of my favorite films of all time now. And it, like I said, it comes from the great uh, Mexican director, Guillermo del Toro, who's done some other amazing works, The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, which really introduced me to like mm-hmm. his world. And this is him doing a fantasy film. Like it's, a, it's an adult fantasy, but a fantasy nonetheless. And it's just so splendid. Yeah, you don't see many films like that. When I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, it's like this amazing R-rated love child of E.T. and Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Uh, but it really is. It, it's, it is. It's, I remember you saying when you first saw that, like, if I was going to be a filmmaker, this is the type of film I'd want to make. Yeah. Like a fantasy, fun film for adults. Um, really well acted. Richard Jenkins in this movie, too. Gosh, he was good in this movie, too. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I think that's a damn fine best picture winner, really good best picture winner. Um, and of course, the Winford Del Toro is really great too. Production design, score are all fantastic. So. And again, I know it's so quote unquote low, but man, this list could be so interchangeable. Yeah. I mean, when it makes a, t- a top 10 list out of the most, uh, you know, inflatable decade of films ever, mm. I mean, that's something. So, okay. My number nine is also from 2017, one that we've talked about a lot in our best of decade lists, and it is from Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird. 
at the time, this was my favorite film of 2017. There's another one that I kind of like a little more now, but we'll get to that. Um, it's, you know, it begins with Saoirse Ronan and her fantastic portrayal. Um, it is the story of Christine Ladybird, um, who is portrayed by Saoirse Ronan. And she's kind of going through her final year of high school, leading into, you know, this deciding where to go to college, whether she wants to leave her hometown of Sacramento and travel to New York, all while kind of navigating this relationship with her mother, which is very rocky. Not rocky in a way that she's like heavily mistreated by her mother or like that, but that they don't quite get on the same level very often. Ladybird is um, very, I don't know, rebellious, um, kind of like her own free spirit. And that's definitely not something that her mother played brilliantly by more Laurie Metcalf is very much used to. This was Greta Gerwig's debut. Does not feel like that in any way. It feels like the work of a seasoned filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely filled to the brim with pure humanity and warmth, but still does not shy away from the conflict. Um, I think every high schooler in America should watch this movie at least once, um, preferably, you know, between when they graduate high school or around the time they're thinking about college, because I think it's very easy for a lot of people to relate to certain aspects of Lady Bird um, and her journey. So that's my number nine, Lady Bird. Uh, it didn't make my top 10, but damn it, it almost did. 2017, great movies. Yes, it did. I remember seeing this with um, a couple of my friends who I went to school with, and we all started laughing at all like the Catholic school things that were like hashtag relatable, like the whole dancing and leaving room for the Holy Spirit. Um, they're both girls, so they had the whole, the skirts had to be a certain length above the knee and literally being measured for that. Like they were cracking up. And I'm like, I even understood that because my friends, I knew their pain when that day came. But no, it's a very relatable movie in that sense for me. And I spoke about this too when we talked about her acting, that I know people who have compared themselves to Lady <clears throat> to Lady Bird and Mary and her mother. Because this is, again, a person that you could know. There are Lady mm-hmm. Birds everywhere. This is like, like you said, a semi-autobiographical Greta Gerwig. Yeah, but exactly. But does such a damn good role, and Laurie Metcalf does a damn good role, and this is just a fun movie. It's fun, and it's heartbreaking, and I love it. It's very, it's it's both like very challenging and very easy to watch at the same time. Mm. Like it makes you think, but it's also warm and just kind of a nice film to sit down and watch too. It's like on surface level, it's about a rebellious girl. Yeah. And then there's like the complex situation of all of her relationships all underneath that. Right. And how she handles life and what she wants from life. Definitely. All right. Let's hear your number eight. All right. My number eight, I was not supposed to see it. I was not supposed to care. I was not supposed to love it. And it is from 2015, Mad Max Fury Road. Mm, Very nice. I heard so many people in one of my film classes saying, did you hear it's getting good reviews? Did you hear it's getting great reviews? I'll go see it. Well, me not knowing really what Mad Max was, despite having a friend in high school saying 
something briefly about Mad Max and me not giving a hoot. I saw it, and I was amazed by it. It's just a simple plot. Furiosa, played brilliantly by Charlize Theron, uh, is taking, I believe it's water, correct? Uh, Guzzling. 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 It's a post-apocalyptic Australia. He's taking that to another sort of tribal community, but instead detours, and nobody knows why. So uh, the Morton Joe pretty much sends him, himself, and his merry band of misfits <laughs> along the Fury Road to catch up with her. And they also have a prisoner who is, of course, Max, played by Tom Hardy. And it's literally just them driving and trying to chase each other. But it's so... Excuse my language. We already have the ex- expletive thing on iTunes. It's so fucking good. Okay, this is like... And people say this is one of the best films of the decade. They're not wrong. It is just simply a fun film. There's so much... Again, surface level. They're all just driving, trying to catch up with each other. But on the lower end of it, and deep down inside, it is a totally feminist movie where there's mm-hmm. like a whole situation with these girls escaping Joe because he wants to impregnate them all whilst they don't want that anymore. There's Furiosa wanting to get back to her tribe, which is the tribe of just all women. And there's a whole situation of like the whole post-apocalyptic society. And we don't want that, especially because it came upon with, I believe from the other films, it was a whole nuclear situation. Because this is a third, it is a third sequel of the original Mad Max, fourth in the series. Yeah. Um, I still don't think this gets enough credit Probably my pick of 2015 for like best picture, and that would have been a stunning shock for everybody because it is not the type of movie you would say this is like an academy thing because it is pure action, adventure, great cinematography, great visual effects, great costume design, sound, score like everything has this, everything is going for it in this movie. And again, I wasn't supposed to see it because I didn't care about Mad Max. And I saw it in possibly the loudest theater that had surround Dolby sound, which you may think is like every theater. But this thing demonstrated that it could go 360 in the theater. And I'll never forget that I was like, I covered my ears and some of it was just so loud. It was so worth it. Yes. Yeah, I remember seeing the trailer for this movie and I had not seen any of the Mad Max films before it. And I was like, why, why does that seem so interesting to me? Like, it looks like a hyped up Fast and Furious movie. What's going on? Which I like, but, you know, whatever. The Fast and Furious wishes. Right. Well, and then I kept seeing, like you said, these reviews. Like, these people not just like it, they love it. Like, we're talking, like, amazing scores here. And it was very well-deserved. Um, like I said, does not stop whatsoever. Really, yeah, I agree at the time, yes, I thought The Revenant was the best film of 2015. Since then, it's knocked down my number two. Mad Max was the best. So, I agree. Okay. My number eight is from 2016, one that has already been mentioned. You guessed it. La La Land from Damien Chazelle. Damien Chazelle, he might be, like, the best director of this decade, what he did with this with whiplash i think first man was really good and different um but la la land is definitely as a director probably his crowning achievement so far and he won best director for it very fittingly 
when I first saw this movie, I think I said it was either pretty good, great, or masterpiece. I think it, I don't know if I'd quite call it a masterpiece, but I love it so much more so than I did when I first saw it. Much like you, um, I've probably seen it five times now, at least in 2017, I was kind of having a rough year. And this was one of those movies that I just, I wanted to watch multiple times because it made me feel good. Even if, you know, spoiler alert, it's not the happy ending that everybody expects. It's not a sad ending per se, but not what we expect. It works so well. You know, Emma Stone with the audition scene is wonderful. Um, Ryan Gosling is just absolutely full of charisma in this role. The cinematography is stunning from the first um, song, Another Day of Sun, to that image of them dancing with the purple sky and the L.A. background. That just encapsulates that classic Hollywood feel that you mentioned when you were talking about this movie. And I think that's why I love it so much. Um, It inspired me to finally watch Singing in the Rain. It inspired me to watch The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is actually my favorite musical um because you can see all his influences coming in here for damien chazelle and yeah i i absolutely love it i know it has plenty of detractors but the songs are flat out amazing the score is possibly the best of the decade from justin Hurwitz, and it's just a really nice film so that's my number eight la la land i was just thinking the score is like a third character it is. It really is. It's much how, like, in The Artist from 2011, that the score in that is obviously a third character because it's a silent film. But the score in this is a character in and of itself. Yeah. And the epilogue scene. Oh, my God. <sighs> epilogue and the planetarium. Oh, there's so many. All right. Let's hear your number seven. All right. My number seven from 2017. A good gear, y'all. It is Pixar's Coco. Ooh, nice. See, um, very personal film to me. I believe we, yes, I spoke about it in uh, our best of animated of the decade. But if you don't know what it's about, a young boy, Miguel, journeys into the land of the dead uh, to find his grandfather, who he believes is a famous singer who has passed on. He encounters his family who are like, no, you can't sing. This is against our wishes. Please go back to the world of the living and don't sing. Well, he doesn't follow those rules. He meets Hector, who will help him get to his quote, quote, grandfather. And stuff happens from there. I know this movie has been out a while. I don't want to spoil it at all. But like we said in our um, podcast over this, a very personal film for me with the Hispanic heritage and the whole Day of the Dead situation. I think it's one of the best animated films, let alone one of the best film films of all time. I know that its plot to some people feels very familiar in terms of Pixar storytelling. Fine, I don't really care. It's just the whole vibrancy of feeling so good watching it and how much anybody from any culture can get out of this, especially if you have a loved one who has passed away, how you can feel connected to them. And especially through that song, Remember Me, and the final moments uh, with the song Proud Heart, or Proud Corazon in this case. What an awesome movie. 
Highly recommend watching it in Spanish someday if you ever get the chance. It is on Disney Plus. Used to be on Netflix, but <laughs> we're in a different world now. But yeah, Coco, my number seven. And yeah, Brett knows how much I love this film. Everybody I know knows how much I love this film. It's very deserved. Like you said, one of the best animated films of the decade for sure. Um, we both talked about it in um, our best animated films of the decade episode. And yeah, such, I mean, the tears can flow so easily when you're watching that one. You know, the story of Miguel and his family and um, how that all comes together and the music and this is the, the role that music plays in the narrative too. Really underrated aspect of that movie. So, okay. Well, I am going to continue the 2017 trend here with Jordan Peele's Get Out as my mm-hmm. number seven. Oh, so low. Yeah, I I struggle. And it's funny because you know my distinctions. If I was to name the best film of the decade, like not just my favorite, but like the best, most well-made, most impactful, Get Out would very much be in the running for that. Jordan Peele. Is he better as a writer or director? Who knows? He's amazing at both as he displays here. The screenplay is phenomenal. If you go and look at some of the trivia behind this film and see the ways that he inserts different things, um, different aspects of black culture and the history of the oppression of black folks and how that kind of plays into different aspects of the narrative, it is absolutely astonishing. Um, And it's well-directed, definitely a horror film. I don't even know why it's in contention to not be for people. Um, but yeah, it's, I completely forgot to dive into the plot. Um, Chris is a young black man who visits, um, his white girlfriend's parents for a weekend with her out in this kind of secluded countryside. And let's just say there's some messed up stuff going on here, um, that he kind of slowly uncovers as he's spending time there. The sunken place. There are college courses over the sunken place and this film and all that it can entail. Daniel Kaluuya is outstanding in this role. Allison Williams and Catherine Keener are awesome villains. Um, And yeah, but overall, I mean, this is just a true testament to the genius of Jordan Peele, which he continued this year with us. Um, But Get Out is a masterpiece that is going to be remembered for a long time. So Mm -hmm. it's my number seven favorite of the decade. Uh, I will save my thoughts. All right. Very nice. Because why would get out be so low for me? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's hear your number six. All right. My number six is from 2013 and it is Alfonso Cuaron's gravity. A film that, and I know Brett has made a list on Letterboxd, if you all go look it up, that if I made a list of my best theater experiences of the decade, it would be number one. Sold out crowd, IMAX, 3D, anxiety induced. I cried a little bit, not going to lie. But no, a great film. Tells the story of Dr. Ryan Stone. She is literally lost in space. A... uh, circumstance happens where a space station blows up and it sends all the debris around the earth 
blowing up the space station that she and George Clooney and a couple of other astronauts are on, hurling into space. For the most part, it's her and George Clooney, and then, spoiler alert, he lets go of the rope, a la Titanic, <laughs> and it's just her. And she has to fight to survive. She has to fight to get to another space station that is still intact whilst trying to avoid the debris because the debris does come back. And getting to the space station is the only hope that she has to survive and go back home. It is masterfully, period, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Like, I think this is his best work. It's such an interesting film to take on because you feel like you are seeing space when I'm pretty sure it's all blue screen or green screen. Um, I talked about how much I love Sandra Bullock in this film. Very subtle performance. She is alone most of it. She has the will to survive. She has the fight to survive. And then the scene where she's descending down to earth is like so brilliantly edited and the sound because... Like I've mentioned, I've written a few papers on this and the sound quality of it. I took a class. Great stuff. The ending shot, spoiler alert, she does make it to Earth. The ending shot is her being pretty much reborn onto Earth, where she's learning to walk again with gravity. <laughs> gravity pushing her down instead of making her float. But no, a great film, and honestly one that I will love to watch every year. Just like, it's such a short film too. Like, I'm talking about this as if it's an epic. It's 90 yeah. minutes long. Like, how amazing is that? That's wild. Yeah, I mean, you think back on the decade, even though Gravity did not make my list, it could contend for the best direction of the decade, cinematography, sound design, uh, potentially That's editing. Oh my gosh, like the the technical aspects of this film are absolutely unreal. It really makes you feel like you're there with Dr. Ryan Stone as you're watching. And yeah, I agree. Alfonso Cuaron's best work, in my opinion, as well. And like the opening scene is an opening shot because it's, I think, like eight minutes or so. One can hear like, and it's the entire... It, it literally opens up with the destruction and everything that happens. It doesn't leave you waiting. It's like it gives you yeah. a little bit to introduce the characters, and then it's off. Exactly. Yeah. Well, my number six might be our most recent film um, today. Maybe, maybe not. It is from 2019, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Yes. Parasite is a masterpiece. I mean, I walked out of the theater knowing that it was a masterpiece. Um, This is pretty safe as my number one of 2019 right now. Um, Wow. How do I even describe this movie without giving something away? Um, It's a family living in, um, in poverty in South Korea and the son, um, go finds this position. He was able to obtain this position tutoring a high school um, girl for these rich folks who live in a different part of town. Very, very rich, I should say. As a result, he starts like kind of finding ways to get his, the rest of his family jobs with his family without telling them that they're family members because they're all kind of taking on different roles. And stuff happens from there. <laughs> 
I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> this is one I really, really don't want to spoil for listeners um, because it is one that you need to go in knowing even less than what I just said, honestly. Um, like Jordan Peele, Bong Joon-ho is a master screenwriter and director here. Um, the screenplay, it let's just say without going too deep into them, it covers so many different genres all while being a really interesting take on class structure, um, social class. And so I know I'm not going too in-depth with this, but really, if you haven't seen Parasite, see it as soon as you can and go in knowing as little as possible. It's my number six of the decade. I will save my thoughts, except I will say that looking at my calendar, it arrives on Blu-ray the 28th of January. Oh, nice. So very good. Very soon. And if you still have the chance to see it in theaters at the time of listening to this, by all means, my God, see it in theaters. Yes, please do. Yes, I'll save my thoughts. All right. Well, then let's start going into the top five. What's your number five? All right. My number five, I recently rewatched this a few weeks ago, and it is from 2014. It's Whiplash. Yes. Another film by Damien Chazelle, who we spoke about earlier with La La Land. A film that also, in the Kansas City metro, where we are doing this from, stayed in theaters a solid weekend. (laughs) Because I will never forget, I saw it on Saturday, and by Tuesday, it was gone. So, yeah. yeah. But it tells the story of a young musician in college, played by Miles Teller, who wants to pretty much be the best he can possibly be. He auditions for and gets into a prestige program led by Terrence Fletcher, an award-winning J.K. Simmons in this. And it is not what he thinks it's going to be because Fletcher is the world's biggest asshole. Mm -hmm. And it's not even like, oh, okay, that's just like hyperbole. No, he is morally evil as a band instructor he will throw a chair at you he will call you names he will make you want to pretty much kill yourself there's a whole scene about that topic in this but it is more like being perfect even if you have an obstacle and the obstacle is a damn teacher it's not internal conflicts it is a teacher who is preventing you from being perfect from wanting to achieve what you want It is the most stress-inducing film experience I've ever imagined because Terrence Fletcher is just so evil. But I love it. I love (laughs) J.K. Simmons' role in this. Miles Teller is so good because he was a professional drum player at one point in his young life that he got to come back and play these drums perfectly. Yes, fun fact. He knew knew how to play the drums. Yeah, he wasn't like Ryan Gosling learning how to play the piano. He knew the drums. So okay. a real reason why Damien Chazelle put him in this. But yeah, that's Whiplash. I honestly think one of the, probably the best film of 2014. And also, ooh, great editing. Like yes. the final band scene. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, this is another movie where, I think all these movies are, you have to see it to believe it. But it's basically the editing shot after shot from eyes to eyes from hands to drums 
to blood to eyes. Oh my God. It mm. is so great. <laughs> well, I agree. It is the best film of number of 2014, which is why it's also my number five film of the decade. Woo-hoo. Whiplash. Yeah. I, the, the editing is amazing. That was like kind of a surprise win at the Academy Awards that year, but I think it's the, might be the best editing of the decade, in my opinion. It is that like rapid fire, ready to go at all times. When I walked out of this movie at the theater, which again was not here for very long, I was just like so pumped. I was like, all right, let's go. Like, <laughs> let's go do something because I've got so much energy right now from watching this movie. You'd think it would exhaust me, but no, it just had me kind of like fired up. Um, mm-hmm. Especially because that ending scene where Miles Teller, he's been fooled by Fletcher again. Uh, but then they they have that moment, like we've talked about last time, in their best supporting list where they lock eyes with each other and kind of have that realization that yes, this is it. This is this is this might be perfection. What a double feature this would make with Black Swan, right? Artists seeking perfection and abusive uh, mentors who are kind of getting in the way of that while thinking that they're helping. Yeah, um, J.K. Simmons, one of the best performances of the decade ever, probably. Um, And really, yeah, and Miles Teller, really underrated here as well. He gives a really good performance here, too. And so a great villain. Yes. You think of of villains like Darth Vader and the Wicked Witch and Hannibal. And this is just a music teacher. Yes. He wants his terrifying. He wants his own version of perfection but in a way that he thinks he can achieve it. But it don't work on everybody. No. It's literally like he meets his match finally with this kid. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. But yeah, like I said, Damien Chazelle. He's got two on both of our lists, and so few directors had a better decade than him. So that's my number five. All right, on to your number four. All right, a film that is loved by our good friends from the podcast, Zay and Toby, a film that is loved by my dear friends, a film that is loved by Brett, and now is loved by me. It's Parasite. Yes. Everybody everybody loves this film. I mean, everybody who I know who have seen it, they're overwhelmed by it. They're shocked. Um, We saw it in theaters, and I turned to you and was like, is this a comedy? Because it's funny, it's heartwarming, it's strange. Let's just say that without saying any more. It's a strange film that, like Brett says, touches on class, touches on that class relationship that normally we see in American films. This is a Korean film. It's a little bit more similar to what you could see from America. And Bong uh, Joon-ho does such an amazing job with it. I don't know if I really want to talk about it that much because it's like a film. <laughs> it is a film you have to see to believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's all I want to say. Yeah. No, that's, that's all. That's probably all that should be said. I, what I will say, I know the conversation is it's international film, foreign language. No way it can win best picture. Few films are as well liked as Parasite. So thinking about that preferential ballot, I, I've got my fingers crossed and I, I really think it has a chance. So we'll see. It is an unexpected film. 
Yes, very much so. Deserving already of the Palm d'Or over at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, and which is already like hopefully some more awards. So yeah, we shall know very soon. Okay, we got a lot of crossover somewhat going forward, but um, this one I'm a good ninety nine point nine percent sure you will not have from Richard Linklater. 2016 it is everybody wants some yes not boyhood um not even before midnight which i think is amazing um but everybody wants some few movies that i just enjoyed myself as much as i did watching this one it is a straightforward comedy there is not a single dramatic beat in it but it is it is surprisingly humane sociological physio or uh sociological philosophical kind of what he did with days and confused um this is considered the spiritual sequel to that film and it follows a um a young man named jake who is off to college in the year 1980 as part of a college baseball team this film literally just covers the first weekend of his experience at this texas university where he meets all of his baseball friends they go out and party and drink and um, hook up with women. And, you know, what's that? Shenanigans. It's shenanigans. Yeah. The characters that he encounters throughout this um, are just so fan- so interesting. Glenn Powell plays Finn, who was one of my top 10 supporting acting performances of the decade. Um, Tyler Hecklin is really good in this as well. Wyatt Russell, names that most people probably don't even know. Zoe Deutsch is probably the most popular name in the film. Um, But really great ensemble. It's not a film that's going to be for everybody. And I definitely see why it wouldn't touch with some people. Um, I'm not going to lie, it is a very masculine film, um, understandably so. But, (laughs) But it is very funny. It's one that I could watch numerous times not get tired of and laugh every single time and so and i really love richard linklater he's one of my all-time favorite directors this one i really think should have got a little more attention when it came out in 2016 but it's my number four of the decade also should have had more dicks in it but that's just me (laughs) Uh, i remember tweeting one of the actors and i was like oh he's so cute in this and he like liked the tweet and yeah nice we're best friends so very nice i don't remember who it was they did like a promotional thing like there were three of them that were in kansas city to promote the movie at one point. right and one of them was like wyatt russell yes so mad i didn't go literally i went to go see this in theaters and i was like the only one in there and 10 minutes into the movie some guy walks in some older gentleman and sits like three in front of me and he had, and I swear he had a bag of peanuts shelled <sighs> that he ate and like crunch, crunch, crunch of the whole movie. And I'm oh like, oh my gosh. Me? But nevertheless, I also like this movie. I own it. I haven't seen it in ages, but it is one to rewatch. It's very easy to rewatch too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Good pick. And Brett likes baseball. So it like, it all makes sense. It, yeah, it makes sense. Shouldn't be too surprised. All right. Lead us into the top three. All right. My number three is another international feature from 2011. It is a separation. Mm. What a damn 
fine film. Okay. I had a hard time making this top three, let me just say. These the next three are the three though that I'm very comfortable having in these spots. Yeah. Right? So pretty much it involves it is the OG it is the OG marriage story. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it is about a couple that wants to divorce. It takes place in um, Iran. The difficulty of this divorce, though, is that it has to be approved more so by the government and by the husband than just, hey, let's get a divorce. Okay. It's a very cultural difference. Whilst at the same time, there's a situation with a housekeeper and the husband. Did he push her down the stairs, causing her to lose her child? Did he not? Uh, there's a wonderful performance by um, another actress in there. Oh, I want to get her name. Uh, Serena Farhadi, who's actually yeah. who's actually um, the director's daughter, Asghar Farhadi. It's his daughter playing the daughter in this film. She gives a wonderful supporting role. She's really the voice of reason through all of this. Just sort of questioning, like, did her dad do this? Why does her mom and dad want a divorce? What's going to happen next? Really a, I would say, surprising watch when I first saw it because I saw it post-Oscar win. And I saw it and I really loved it. And then I watched it again in film class because they showed it to us. And it made me understand how much I love this film and how much Iranian films are so damn good. Especially those like I love Farhadi. I've seen about Ellie. Brett and I have both seen that through one of our classes. Um, the Salesman was very, very good. I enjoyed Everybody Knows. I don't know if you did or not. Yeah, yeah I enjoyed it. But yeah, but it's a separation that feels so different. And it feels, even though there's like a cultural difference in how this divorce goes about, it could be played out here. Because even though this is about a separation, it's much more than that. Because this man has to take care also of his father who has dementia of some sorts. Again, there's an issue with the housekeeper. I mean, it's it's a mystery. It's very much too related to class, much like Parasite is. Very different terms. But no, a separation. It's a great film. And if you're listening, it's on Netflix. Yes. Please watch it. Yeah, as you know, I, I finally watched it. Um couple weeks ago it's one that's been like on my watch list for so long that i just really wanted to get to i finally got to it oh my gosh uh masterpiece five-star film for sure it it's one that i definitely considered for this list 2011 is is so often considered a weak year for film which i definitely disagree with i mean there's some really good films made that year and this is definitely one of the best for sure serena farhadi is incredible like if we're going to talk about child performances this decade, she has to be near the top of the list. Um, so very underrated performance there from her as well as the entire cast. Just Farhadi just knows how to weave a narrative in a way that's ambiguous and interesting is so that you're always finally attuned to what's going on. So even if you don't know what's going on. And so very nice. I would say make this a double feature. If you ever watch it, y'all with, the salesman, his um, second Oscar-winning feature, because mm-hmm. they're both, like Brett said, very. There's ambiguous moments in these films. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, my number three is Toy Story three from 
2010. Um, so we did our top 10 animated films of the decade. A lot of good ones there. This was the one that made my list, my favorite animated film this decade. Oh my gosh. First time I like actually cried tears in the theater at multiple <laughs> points in this movie. Thought they were going to die. They say goodbye to Andy. So long partner. Oh my gosh. And anytime I watch it now, I still tear up and you know, there's all stuff I, I rave about this film every time I talk about it. But one thing that I think is underrated is how funny it is. I mean, it is, these characters are fun to follow. They're heartwarming, but they also provide some laughs too, especially buzz when he goes into his Spanish mode for like the last half of the film, his interactions with Jesse um, and the whole gang. I mean, this really is a movie for the entire gang of toys, um, which is what, you know, they kind of took a different direction with Toy Story 4, still great, but this was kind of like the whole gang figuring out their place in the world together. It's a good ending. Very good ending. Mm-hmm. Very good ending. Um, a lot of concern from people like us who probably, you know, grew up with the first two, 11 years after um, Toy Story 2, where are they going to go with it? And they succeeded brilliantly. Won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature, as it should have. And it's my number three. Was nominated for best picture too. It was. So very back good. when they Yeah, back when they made sense and still did ten nominees. So Great. and to think that was only what, a decade ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it is like I said, it's a very good ending to this trilogy, whilst Toy Story 4 is a good epilogue to it all. Mm-hmm. So but I God. Just like you, um, I think this was the first time I cried in the theater. I mean, it gets they, you. They accept death, and then they get given away to Bonnie, and the whole like, well, this is it. So long, partner. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> why are they doing this to us? And when I rewatched this back in June in anticipation for Toy Story Four, going through a hard time, uh, yes, I did cry very, very hard. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think about the same equivalency as I cry when I saw this in theaters. So. Yeah. Also one of the best theater experiences for me. Again, with a sold out crowd, I had to walk out with my 3D glasses on because I didn't want people to see my tears. <laughs> yeah. When I saw this in theaters, it was actually my brother's. Oh, gosh, that would have been his ninth birthday. It opened on his birthday. So we went, saw it in garden. Theater was packed. And like when the Pixar logo like finished, there was a group of people that are like to infinity and beyond. And I was like, I'm here for it. You know, shut up now and let's enjoy this. So. Okay. Final two. What do you got? All right. So I think that this is the most culturally relevant films. God, I had such a hard ones with this, but here we go. 2017's Get Out. Yes. A very, to me, unexpected film. I saw this at a free screening, didn't know what it was about, didn't know what to expect. I convinced my dad to go with me just on the basis of it's scary. It's scary in a different way. It is scary as in it is a very relevant tale to African-American versus white people. And why? You can be afraid of white people because white people are sometimes scary. And this family is a very scary family alongside their friends. 
poor Chris is thrown into this world very quickly where he doesn't know what the hell's happening. He is thrown into the sunken place, as Brett said. Strange shit starts to happen. That whole interaction he has with um, Lakeith Stanfield's character. Yeah, where he flashes with the camera and Lakeith immediately says, like, get out, get out. From that point on, Chris knows something's happening. I mean, the white people, I mean, all offense to them, but they're asking him, like, the strangest fucking questions at the party. And suddenly he goes upstairs and there's that great scene where as he's walking upstairs, everybody goes silence and just hears him and just waits. And it's like, you know something's going down. And then when you find out what's really happening, like, what a good fucking movie. And I love, too, the fact that the Golden Globes nominated this in a comedy category. Did anybody, I mean, other than uh, his in this, did anybody laugh at most of this movie? And then for Jordan Peele to go, it's a documentary. <laughs> like, Zing. Yeah. So, I mean, again, a great double feature with us. Jordan Peele knows how to make a social commentary film through horror. Because I think that's the best way to do it. You know? Yes. Yeah. I, Because I was just thinking about when this came out. And it's like from Jordan Peele. And I'm like, wait, like Key and Peele? Like, right? is this a, is this supposed to be a comedy horror? It looks like a horror movie. What what's going on here, Jordan? And yeah, I so, something I forgot to mention was just the way it tackles um, liberal minded racism mm-hmm. uh, through like racial microaggressions, like where they're talking about, oh yeah, my favorite golfer is Tiger Woods and stuff like that. Like, well, I would have I voted for Obama if he would have had a third term. Yeah, very very gosh, intelligent writing that really touches on those issues so well. Can't argue. I at that free free screening, I will say a lot of people, including myself, were like actually making some noise. <laughs> Understandably so. The ending too. Should I say what happens at the end? You know, hey, mute it right now. Take like a minute or so. Christian's going to reveal the ending because we're going to talk about it. So. Basically, his girlfriend comes after him, but he overpowers her, pretty much kills her. Well, she is dying, and you see a cop car coming. Well, (sighs) as I saw this in theaters, everybody's like, oh my god, no, it's happening. Well, turns out it is his friend in the cop car who's come to help and find him. And everybody, when I saw this, started cheering. I gave a big sigh of relief. Because normally you would think when the cop car comes, it's coming to get this black man. Who? Yeah as we find out through all this, is obviously very innocent. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. <laughs> I will say the deleted scene ending of this film is totally different and ruins the movie, and I've seen it and don't recommend it. Yeah. I've read what happens, and I'm just like, nah, nah. Yeah. I'm not going to even bother. Yeah. So, very nice. My number two, once again, probably not a shock to you. From 2012, David O. Russell's Silver Linings Playbook. Whoa. Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, what, what do you know? Everybody's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this in our 2012 episode. It is oh, at least top 10 all time for me, movie. It just really um, impacted me when I saw it for the first time. And it just, it it's stuck with me ever since. It's one of those kind of like, you know, a lot of these films on my list where 
I can watch it and have the whole thing memorized, but still find something new or take a new appreciation of it. These characters, Pat, um, Bradley Cooper, he plays a man who has just gotten out of a mental institution. Um, he was thrown in there um, after he basically beat the man that his wife was cheating on him with, and he was diagnosed with um, bipolar disorder. Um, and so he's kind of recovering from that. He's just been released, goes back to live with his parents, wants to get back together with his ex-wife, but in comes Tiffany, played by Jennifer Lawrence, who throws a loop into things, asks him to do this dance contest with her, and it kind of goes from there. The interactions between not just these two characters, but between all of the characters, I think is why I love this film so much. The characters played by Jackie Weaver and her crabby snacks. And homemade. And and homemade. And Robert De Niro, Chris Tucker, um, Julia Stiles, John Ortiz. The the whole cast, their interactions with each other are just awesome. Great screenplay written from a not-so-great book. And it's just very heartwarming by the time the end comes around, but not in a way that is overly sentimental. Very interesting take on mental health, mental illness um, that really just impacted me and stuck with me when I first saw this idea that it's okay to feel different and to not feel okay sometimes and to really look at the people who surround you. So Silver Linings Playbook, my number two. I keep saying I'm surprised, I'm surprised, but at the same time, I have to think back on our 2012 podcast where I'm not surprised. Yeah. But no, I like Silver Lining Playbook too. I remember seeing it in theaters and it's like, even though these are two people with very complex emotions and a complex relationship, you kind of like, like it. Mm-hmm. I guess you like the movie. I don't know the relationships. It's different. Yeah. But it's a movie to like. There's a whole lot to it. My dad really liked it. My mom wasn't, I don't think my mom got it, but I love it. I can watch it every year. Yeah. All right. It's all come down to this. Let's hear your number one. All right. So my number one, I will say, is a film that I don't consider my number one of its year. But I'm going to tell you why I consider it the number one of the decade. And it is 2010's The Social Network. Mm. So at the time of this recording, I watched The Social Network again this morning. Watching it this time around compared to being 15 years old, Mark Zuckerberg is beautiful. <laughs> I rooted for him as a 15-year-old and was like, oh, his friends did him dirty. Yes, I'm like, his friends did him dirty. He's the hero. He made Facebook. Facebook is amazing. I, was, I write this in my review on Letterboxd. I was two years into Facebook when this film came out. I love mm. Facebook. I still use Facebook religiously to this day. However, over time, you realize that Mark Zuckerberg and this movie literally warned us that he was always the shady <laughs> asshole that he was. So Christian, why is it though your number 10 of the decade? Because Facebook was in all of our lives. Facebook controlled us for the entire decade. All of us had a Facebook. Most people had a Facebook anyway that I knew. Even people who didn't want a Facebook, I convinced them in high school enough to get a Facebook because I thought Facebook was going to be this thing of the future, which it is. However, it took such a dark turn. And this movie is so important 
to understand the entire decade as a whole. Because of what happened in the 2016 election, where Facebook was very much involved in what happened with that election, to Facebook hacking our own privacy, getting at... There's a scene in the movie where Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake, is like, nobody likes ads. Well, that's funny, because guess what's on <laughs> Facebook today? Guess how Facebook pays for us to not have to pay for it? It's through ads. Like, this movie is 2010, the beginning of the decade, and we're still... I'm on... Literally, I'm looking at Facebook right now as we're doing this. It's opened up in a new tab. Okay? Mark Zuckerberg is an evil asshole. And yet, 15-year-old me was like, this movie's great. He's great. I want to be just like him. I don't want to be just like him. Sorry. He had too much power. He screwed over his friends. They screwed over each other. Uh, Brett mentioned this. There is no one good character that you can root for in this. Like, yeah. they're all a bunch of idiots. They're all a bunch of assholes. <laughs> you know the one character you can root for? Rashida Jones's lawyer. Rashida kid. Jones, yes, exactly. I was he's just voice, thinking that. He's the voice of reason. At the very tail end of this, she's like, why'd you do it? <laughs> but, yeah. That's it. That, again, it's not the favorite of 2010 for me, by all means. But watching it today, putting it in context of what the world has been through with this website in the past 10 years, it's so important. And as a movie, to, to like, like I said, to warn us about Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> yeah. It, it's aged extremely well. Mm-hmm. Very well. Um I think I, IndieWire does these critic surveys. If you haven't seen them, they're actually worth checking out. They're pretty cool. Um, David Ehrlich will contact a bunch of critics and ask them a certain question. Well, this year he asked, what is the defining movie of the decade? And the winner among all the critics was The Social Network. And for every reason you just mentioned, it's really easy to see why. You know, with the way that site controls our world. I mean, you can make a compelling sequel to The Social Network with all the stuff that Cambridge Analytica and Russia and all the stuff that's going on with Facebook, which is really interesting. And so, yeah, definitely understand that pick and your reasoning for it. Obviously, mine is a little different. Mine comes from 2013 from Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it is Inside Lewin Davis. Oh. Yeah. I, I love this movie so much easy top five all time for me it gets better each time i watch it which i kind of spread it out so i don't know i it's like every time i watch it it has to be you know i've taken time away from it to so i get appreciated again um but it stars oscar isaac as a young i shouldn't say a a folk singer um in the greenwich village uh folk scene in new york in 1961 who is just really down on his luck i mean there's not it's not very plot heavy. It's very much character driven, a character study of this guy as he goes around chasing his neighbor's cats, trying to get a record deal, riding in a uh, car with a John Goodman who's hooked on heroin. Just a few things that happen throughout this movie um, that seems very like rough and kind of out there, but never feels unrealistic in the slightest. I absolutely adore the soundtrack to this movie. Um, we've talked about Please Mr. Kennedy, that scene between him and Justin Timberlake and Adam Driver, um, where they sing that song. They do a rendition of Fare Thee Well. Um, 
Dink song, which is a very famous folk song. He does it with Marcus Mumford. It's really good. Oscar Isaac is awesome in this movie. He fully encapsulates this character. And while everything I've said, you know, it probably comes out as a pretty sad movie, and it is, it's quite funny as well. You know, it's never, to me, it's sad, but it's never quite exactly depressing, even though this character goes through the ringer, Um, which I think is a testament to the Coens. They wrote an amazing script, directed the hell out of this. The cinematography is awesome. I love this movie. Sometimes there's this movie where you just have to say, I freaking love it. And that's the way it is. And that's the way it is with Inside Lewin Davis for me. So it is my number one of the decade. I need to rewatch it. You do. I have the Criterion. It's awesome. I have the Criterion DVD from the library and it's literally upstairs in my bedroom. Nice. I put it on after this. I know. The only, uh, amazingly, the first time I watched it, I unfortunately didn't like it. And it was because it was for a six-hour car ride on a tiny little portable DVD player mm. with the sun glaring on it. And this is a very dark-looking movie. Yes. Like, it, it looks like it's a cloudy day in the entire movie. Yes. <laughs> well, I really couldn't see most of it. But no, I will definitely give it a rewatch now. Yeah, it was, it was just really ignored by the Oscars that year, except for the cinematography and the sound mixing. Uh, that I, I think 2013 was an incredible year, but this really, I think should have been in the mix for best picture mm-hmm. in my opinion, but okay. So before we go into our honorable mentions, I kind of did some tracking here to figure out which years got mentioned the most by each of us. So you could say there's like 20 points to work with here. Poor 2018, not a single mention from either of us, Oh, which a good year in my opinion. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. 2011, 2012, and 2015 each had one. 2013 and 2014 and 2019 each with two mentions. 2010 and 2016 with three each. And our big winner, 2017, five mentions between the two of us. That was a good year. Good year. But anyway, do you have some honorable mentions for us? Yes. Okay. What do we do? 10? All right, I'm just gonna give you my, I'm just gonna give you my ten honorable mentions because I made a list of twenty. Okay. Again, all interchangeable. Uh, let's see, Black Swan, Toy Story three, which you mentioned, her, which her is Alexa these days. Google <laughs> Play. I mean, again, a movie that warned us. Yes. Um, Lady Bird. Moonlight, a very important film. Unfortunately, didn't make both of our lists, but the impact that very that good. made in the LGBT community, great. Yes. A film that I love that didn't get nearly enough credit and still doesn't, Fruitvale Station. Have you seen it? Yes. Amazing okay. movie. Thank you. Outstanding. Yeah. A case where I didn't cry in the theater, but my dad cried in the theater. Yeah. Um Definitely seek that out with uh, Ryan Coogler directed that and Michael B. Jordan is in that. That was the first film I saw in an indie theater. So this really? kind of has a, a special place in my heart just for that. I didn't even know what it was going in there. I just heard like word of mouth. Oh, it's good through like reviews and right. AMC for one weekend. So we went to go see it. Great stuff. Um, Inside Out, a really important movie to me in a year that I wasn't feeling the best mentally. Uh, Gone Girl, a fantastic adaptation 
of an already pretty lit book. True Grit, the Coen Brothers film, a great mm. western. I'm not big on westerns, really modern westerns. I don't really dig, but that one was lit. Uh, Christmas 2010, I saw that. I'll never forget it. And of course, Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, part one and two, is satisfying as hell conclusion to an amazing series that I grew up on. So, Well, funny you end with that because... My basically my number eleven was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two. It just it oh it pained me to leave it off my list, but it didn't quite make it. Definitely the best franchise film of the decade for me. Uh, Manchester by the Sea, Skyfall, great James Bond film. The Artists, The Wolf of Wall Street, Her, Paddington Two, my favorite from twenty eighteen. Oh, they will be so happy. Yes, that's for Zay. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Mad Max, as you mentioned, Gone Girl, another David Fincher. I have to mention, because they just so dominated the movies this decade, the best Marvel Cinematic Universe film, Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, Before Midnight, another Richard Linklater. My favorite documentary of the decade, OJ Made in America. You could argue it's a series, whatever. Won the Oscar. Black Klansman for a number of reasons that we've talked about many times, Coco and A Separation. A lot of good movies. I think many people as you said, many people are always like, why is Paddington on the list? Watch Paddington, y'all. Yeah. Like, yeah. Both Paddington yeah, and Paddington those people. 2, they're actually pretty damn great movies. Yes. Paddington 2 is just, it, it's the perfect movie for this time. It really is. Like if you're feeling Almost bad, on my list. If you're feeling bad, Paddington will cheer you up. Yes. Love that bear. Okay. Well, that is our top 10 favorite films of the decade, best films of the decade. Um, Wow. Hard to believe it's already come to a close. 2020 is beginning, but this is far from the end for us. We have uh, our Oscar predictions for the winners of the Academy Awards coming up soon. Um, we will be diving back into our which picture was best segments, starting with the year 1991. We'll have Toby back on from our Christmas films episode to join us to talk about that year. So be checking out uh, Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram. We'll be posting a lot of updates there soon throughout award season and the future of Gilded Films in this coming year. Um, Gildedfilms.com, keep up with everything there. And again, thanks as always for tuning in. Theme music composed by Joshua Arnaldi. And as always, rate, review, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. We greatly appreciate it. Christian, final thoughts. What a great decade. It really was. And again, I will go back to what I said earlier. It is a decade where we got to finally watch the grown-up movies. Yes, and enjoy them immensely. I will say, throughout all the crap that's happened this decade at least we got these movies so there you go thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time adios